Hello, this is Brother Elliot, and we're having today a podcast for preaching for Holy Week in 2022. This podcast went a little bit longer than we had planned, but it it will be best used by listening to each part of it separately as you prepare your homily. Uh, We begin on Palm Sunday with Palm Sunday, and then we speak about the readings of Holy Thursday at about the eight-minute mark. Good Friday starts at about the 12-minute mark, the Easter Vigil at 18 minutes, and Easter Morning Mass at 24. It's just short. So for Palm Sunday, first we have a procession. The liturgy begins with a prayer and a reading of the Lucan rendition of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus enters the city from the east, passing through the village of his friends, Simon the leper and Martha and Mary in Bethany. This is how the disciples can simply take the colt and explain that it was Jesus' request. Here we see that Jesus has planned a formal entry into the city of his fate, entering from the Mount of Olives just across from the temple uh, where the prophet Zechariah claimed God would arrive to Jerusalem on Judgment Day. Some little echo there. Now, how could Jesus gain attention of the religious leaders that he needed to challenge. Their misappropriation of the temple ritual, their knowing forgetfulness of the mercy of God, demanding payment of sacrifices, which they controlled and they profited from. Jesus was met by a large group of disciples, Luke calls them a multitude, whom he had evidently alerted so that they would form a throng to march with him. Luke says that they placed him on a colt and threw their cloaks on the ground on the road before him, and as the movement gained a momentum, they began to give him praise spontaneously pronouncing him king. Jesus chose to enter the city riding on a donkey. In fact, the small colt of a donkey, hardly the proper mount for a king. This strange action is a clear reference again to the prophecy of Zechariah when he says, Behold, your king is coming to you. A just savior is he, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. End quote. Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees, warn that proclaiming his kingly messiahship is dangerous in Roman governed territory. Ironically, this is the very reason they will give to the Romans to condemn Jesus, but by it unwittingly bringing about 
the culmination of Jesus' new exodus journey. For Jesus is about to carry out the final event of God's plan for the salvation of the world. Moving on to the Palm Sunday readings at Mass proper, we see the two preliminary readings set up perfectly the passion narrative according to Luke that we read on Mass this year at Mass on this year uh, on Palm Sunday. The first reading is one of the famous servant poems from Isaiah, in which the prophet predicts that the servant of the Lord will suffer for the sins of his people. The second reading then states the profound Christology of the Philippians hymn, which talks of Jesus' self-emptying death, death, just as Isaiah's servant is to die. Jesus suffers death on a cross, even death on a cross, Paul says, as he redeems us from the first Adam's sin and the spiritual death that it brought upon us all. Two preliminary readings. This year, we read Luke's account of the passion of Jesus. He follows the traditional outline of the Gospel of Mark, but he makes some quite significant additions. First of all, we note that Luke emphasizes that Jesus is finally achieving the goal of his journey narrative. He arrives at Jerusalem, where the evangelist says he will be taken up the same word he uses in Acts for Jesus being taken up to heaven after the resurrection. This is the new exodus that Jesus spoke about with Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. And it was a journey to freedom for all of us humans. Luke shows clearly how the end of Jesus' life is the final act of God's story of salvation. From the promise to Abraham, through the exodus from Egypt led by Moses, through the teaching of the great prophets, we arrive now at the culmination of God's plan in Jesus' own self-giving death on the cross. Rather than a simple historical account of the Passion, Luke presents the events in a way that highlights Jesus as a model to imitate in his unswerving trust in God. The behavior of Jesus is especially edifying in some extra touches that Luke adds to the story he inherited from Mark. Jesus shows his concern in a special prayer for the faith of Simon Peter. He refuses all use of violence when he summarily denies using the sword, saying, It is enough. 
Even while being arrested, he heals the ear of the servant of the high priest, the very enemy who calls for his death. Jesus consoles the weeping women of Jerusalem, and he shows great mercy toward the good thief. All these only in Luke. Finally, the loud cry of frustration we see in Mark and Matthew becomes Jesus' faith-filled resignation in death when he cries out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Surely we should all be moved by a reverent reading of this beautiful narrative. Now we move to Holy Thursday. Holy Thursday's readings prepare us for the beautiful ceremony of the foot washing, which takes place just before the offertory of the Mass. We begin by hearing the orders from the Lord God to Moses on when and how to celebrate the Passover service, to remember the first exodus when God freed Israel from their bondage to Egypt. The second reading is St. Paul's tradition of the institution of the Eucharist by Jesus at the Last Supper. Now, for a fuller account of this story of the institution and its theology, you may want to listen to my podcast on New Testament topics with Brother Elliot. It's on the Raleigh Diocesan website under Continuing Education for Priests, and it will be parts two and three of the series, What Was Jesus Thinking? The Gospel reading for the Mass is the Last Supper scene, of course, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. This is unique in John's Gospel, as you know. The scene opens with the assuring words of the evangelist that Jesus, I'll quote him, knew that his hour had come to pass from this world to the Father, and that the Father had put everything into his power. Close quote. In accepting his hour to return to the Father, Jesus will complete his task of redemption. The keynote of this passage is the love with which Jesus performs all his saving deeds. In a most dramatic action, then, Jesus girds himself with a towel like a servant and performs the humble task of washing his disciples' feet. He tells them that they won't understand the action at that moment, but only later. There have been so many interpretations of the meaning of this act by the fathers of the church and medieval theologians and modern commentaries galore. I think we do well by pondering the classic thoughts of deceased Father Raymond Brown, that great scholar, who saw the tradition here 
as having been handed on in two steps. First, the foot washing was presented as a prophetic act, like something Jeremiah would do, demonstrating Jesus' upcoming death and that it was to be a humble act of servants like foot washing, service that would guarantee inheritance with Jesus. His service guarantees the inheritance. That's in verse 8. What follows in verse 12 and following shows a second layer of interpretation. Jesus says, I have, if I have washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you a model to follow. Here, Jesus makes clear that it is we who must also wash each other's feet. In whatever need a brother or sister might require. Let us take this lesson to heart amid the mixed message of joy at Jesus' glorious return to the Father, along with the tears we will shed tomorrow when Jesus dies. We ring joyful bells and play loudly the music of today's Gloria, but then there's no more Alleluia after that. Moving on to Good Friday, here at about uh, minute 14, we see the first reading, and it's the, the fourth and most well-known of Isaiah's beautiful servant poems. I quote, he gives his life as an offering for sin, and the will of the Lord will be accomplished through him. Now, let's be clear on the meaning of this. It is not the will of the Lord that Jesus be put to death. What father would want that for his son? No, no. God's will was that Jesus show how the divine love offers itself even to the last. True love does not count the cost. No, Jesus' suffering and death come at the hands of the master of this world, those who oppress and exploit people under them. His sufferings have eternal value for all men and women, even those who reject him. There's the paradox. Every Good Friday, we read the Passion narrative according to John's Gospel. This is because as it narrates the events, it gives a rich commentary on their meaning. The evangelist employs the point of view of a post-Easter recognition of the triumph of Jesus in the resurrection. In the paradoxical event of his being lifted up, he's lifted up on the cross, but he is also lifted up in exaltation. In the abyss of human suffering of Jesus, we are to see God's glorious self-revelation. 
No wonder in the Middle Ages the crucifix was often portrayed with Jesus clothed in royal splendor and with a crown not of thorns but of rich jewels set in gold. The fourth gospel portrays Jesus with a special dignity. When the soldiers fall to ground in the garden, when Jesus replies using the divine, I am. Think of how these iconic scenes punctuate his human suffering. Jesus asks, if I have spoken rightly to the soldier, why do you strike me? Pilate quips cynically, what is truth? Pilate presents the tortured and bleeding Jesus, behold the man. And then we have the sad admission of those evil chief priests. We have no king but Caesar. In this gospel, Jesus goes to his death knowingly and in complete control. He carries his cross by himself. Remember, it is the world that puts Jesus to death, not God. Jesus proclaims at the Last Supper, the ruler of this world has no power over me because Jesus dies freely as an act of love, in voluntary obedience to show God's ultimate solidarity with men and women. All that happens is predicted in the Old Testament. Even his discarded tunic, the seamless tunic, fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. His very thirst was prescribed by Psalm 22. While dying, Jesus takes the initiative of creating a new family for his followers when he entrusts his mother to his beloved disciple. He dies with consummate dignity, saying, it is finished. And then he freely hands over his spirit in death. Little did the soldier know that his perfunctory proof that Jesus was dead would become a sign for the whole church. The, the water and blood that spring from Jesus pierced with a lance, his side pierced with a lance, stay water and blood speak to us today of the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist and of Jesus' divinity in his true humanity. This gospel is about love. Jesus' love for the Father and his love for his disciples as their model. As the evangelist says, Jesus loved them to the end.
Now we turn to the Easter Vigil. Holy Saturday evening is the time when we celebrate this uh, liturgy replete with readings that traverse the history of salvation. We see that God's saving plan in these long set of readings, God's salvation begins with creation, God's plan. The majestic opening of the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. A fitting reading for this night of prayerful expectation. We rejoice in God's second start at recreating a happy world for humans after their fall from grace. God calls Abraham to be father of a holy people with the promise of salvation for all nations. We are reminded of the profundity of this promise in the vigil's second reading, the story of the Akedah, the Akedah, the Hebrew word for the binding of Abraham's beloved son, Isaac, ordered to be sacrificed by God, by his father, as a test of his faith. Though human sacrifice at that time, think about it, the second millennium BCE, it was human sacrifice was not so unusual in the Middle East. But God foreknew that Abraham would obey his command only to be stopped from actually carrying out the gruesome deed. So we see that God arranged this whole event as a parable to show Abraham's great faith to be a model admired by all who were to follow. The third reading is the story of the Exodus, God's awesome power in history when he caused the drowning of the Egyptian army, pursuing them into the sea, pursuing the chosen people. God's plan for humanity was not to be thwarted by any worldly power. Now, from the retrospective readings of Israel's glorious past, the emphasis now shifts in the fourth reading to the future restoration of humanity to its fullest freedom. The most God, faithful God says, my love will never fall away from you. A fifth reading invites Israel to the eternal covenant. Let them turn to the Lord to find mercy. Isaiah is the poet laureate of the New Testament. The sixth reading is from Jeremiah's secretary, Baruch, and this returns us to daily life with a poetic hymn to wisdom, the call of which is the duty of every God-fearing human being. The prophet Ezekiel then heralds the end of this long lexical introduction 
in an oracle to this prophet, the Lord pours out the grieving heart over an unfaithful people. And yet the Lord promises to take them back once again, to clean them up and refresh them by bringing them back to the promised land, the place where God can give them a new human heart to enjoy once again the love and bounty of God. When we finally get to the epistle from the letter uh, of the Roman to the Romans, we know we are getting ready for the baptisms of those who will be brought into church today. Rather than the familiar washing metaphor for baptism, St. Paul here uses a strong allusion to Christ's death, saying that we die with Christ in this sacrament. Yes, the old self dies, the one crippled by sin and despair. And as they come out of the water, the former catechumens rise to a rich life in which their bodies, Paul says, meaning their very selves, have become weapons for righteousness, fully enabled to live to God in Christ Jesus. The gospel for the vigil is Luke 24's rendition of the empty tomb, the beautiful and moving story of the faithful women, more courageous than the runaway men, the women who come to properly anoint Jesus' dead body according to custom. To their surprise, the tomb is empty, but they are told, by the angel, he is not here. He has been raised. Only Peter listens to their message. He is astounded, too, at what he finds, but he has no idea what great things will soon happen to him and those who have stayed loyal to the name of Jesus. Finally, we come to Easter Sunday morning Mass. And this brings us a nice trio of short and succinct readings. The first from the Acts of the Apostles quotes for us the beginning of St. Peter's dialogue with the Roman centurion Cornelius, the first Jewish household to embrace Christianity. Peter insists that everyone who believes in him, no matter what their background, Everyone will receive forgiveness through his name. I myself would choose the reading from Corinthians for a nice uh, reminder that Christ is our Paschal Lamb. That is, his death was a redeeming sacrifice that should rid us of all that old leaven of malice and wickedness, as the text says so that we might live with sincerity and truth. Now, there's also a choice for the gospel for the morning reading. Uh, it's the gospel about the empty tomb, but it's either John 20 or Luke 24. Now, we saw Luke 24 last night at the vigil. 
So the Johannine rendition is interesting because it starts with Mary Magdalene reporting to Peter that the tomb of Jesus was empty, but she's taken off the stage briefly. She will return, of course, in verse 14 for the beautiful garden recognition scene of Jesus. But before that, Peter must go to the tomb to see for himself. Now, in the fourth gospel, this event turns into a foot race between Peter and the beloved disciple. It should be no surprise to us in the gospel of the beloved disciple, the fourth disciple, that it is he, in fact, who wins the foot race, as well as the faith contest. contest. For while Peter sees but makes no response, the beloved disciple believes because Jesus had predicted if they destroyed the temple of his body, he would raise it up in three days, all the way back in chapter 2. The resurrection. Do we truly believe in the resurrection? Does that incredible hope for our future color our lives now with the strong faith in God and a free good goodness to others? Happy Easter, everyone.